We are speaking with Nick Walsh from Famous Underground. Some of you older listeners might remember him from a Canadian band called Slick Toxic, as we say here in Montreal. Bonjour, Nick. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Good. Thanks let's for having me on the show, Mitch. Absolutely. Let's uh, let's get into this because uh, you are a Juno Award-winning artist for 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 American fans. That's our our version of the Grammys. But we have a new album, our new EP called In My Reflection. Uh, talk to me about first of all making an EP as opposed to a full album, and then let's get into the music on this one. Okay. Well, first off, I mean we'd originally written and recorded. 15 songs and uh, we were going to release it as a full length record last year. And obviously with the, uh, you know, overshadowing of the pandemic, we felt that we were sort of going to have to go back to the drawing board as to when are we going to release this? How are we going to release this? And we decided to do it in a staggered sort of fashion. So as opposed to releasing 14, 15 songs to no fanfare of any kind, uh, especially nowadays, you know, with how fast we consume our music with the internet and everything, and with what was going on last year, we didn't want to just sort of be, you know, brought out two weeks later, we, we have to write a new record because it's disappeared already and overshadowed by so many things. So the fact that we wanted to do it as a staggered release, we've got five songs on In My Reflection. We don't know if the second half is going to be called In My Reflection Part Two or whatever, uh, but uh, we've got other songs lined up uh, pretty much ready to go as well uh, for a possible fall release or early 2022, depending on how things roll out, if you know what I mean. Right. In the fall. Um, as well as I'm already working on new material again. So I always find myself in that little bit of a pitfall because I'm one of those types of people that really likes closure on things, Mitch. And you know, to sort of move forward with the next sort of installment of Famous Underground or whatever project it is I am working on at the time, I sort of like to get things off of the back burner. So that's kind of where we are with uh, with this release. Right. And and I'm going to offer this as a second title. This one is In My Reflection. The next one should be called Reflected because you've already <laughs> reflect. You've already had your reflections, right? That's, that's true. That's See? true. Um, let me ask you about that, uh, you know, not putting out 14 at once because uh, John Five, and, I, and I'm sure you're aware of John Five, brilliant guitarist, Absolutely. his last release, he did a song a month for 10 months, and then at the end of it, he released the album, and I said to him, I said, John, what are you doing? And he said, well, I keep my music in the public eye for the entire year because every month on right. the first, they, they get a new song and they think John Five. Um, is that sort of a smart way to do the business these days is drips and drabs just to keep your name out there in this world of Instagram and Twitter and Facebook? I, Mitch, I believe it is. And in fact, uh, it, you know, you're, you're mentioning John five and that's a recent thing, but back in around 2015, I believe it was, uh, Lori, who's my business partner and bass player in Famous Underground, we took a cue from something like that. And it was actually the Black Eyed Peas who did that first. And at Christmas time, they finally bundled it all together as an actual physical product you could buy, which was all their singles from the year. And we thought that was a great idea. And at that time, we had just recorded a cover. We did a mashup of uh, Megadeth's Peace Sells, But Who's Buying with Bob Marley's Get Up Stand Up. I know. Where does that come from? It just happened. Why know? not? 
<laughs> one of those things. But we did a cover of that and a song that's currently on our EP now called Corrupted. And we decided, okay, well, let's let's try something similar to that. And we coined it the Digital 45. And we, re we released two songs at once. And then things got a little hectic as far as, you know, working on music and and with with the members of the core members of this band, I mean, we're all doing other things as well. So, you know, we kind of put it on hiatus for a little bit. And then, as I said, we were, you know, working on the uh, developing the full record and this is where we are today. But I do think that is a very, very smart strategy in today's, like I said, fast food consume, you know, music consuming. Uh, uh, it is. It, it really is. Um, talk to me about, you know, you, you've described Famous Underground as being your passion, your, your everything. Yeah. Talk to me about that compared to Slick Toxic, because you had a brand. It was an established brand. You have a, a Juno. You have a fan base. You have a brand. Yes. Why not exploit it with 87 different members? I mean, why not? You could. Yeah, you know, it. it's one of those things. Again, I never say never to things. But, for example, even the idea of a proper reunion is just an impossibility because some of the members of the band have gone to the wayside and just wouldn't be able to do it. You know what I'm saying? I mean, lifestyles and and uh, crossroads change people. And I mean, you know, you're a big Kiss fan and you guys are always longing for Ace and Peter to be back in the band. But the realities of it are... I just business, want Ace. Yeah, business is, <laughs> business is business and and growth is another. And some people, like, for example, within my camp, you know, just didn't change, whereas others had to, had to grow up. Uh, due to uh, life circumstances, let's say. So to do a full-blown reunion is not a possibility, but to go out there and do something or some form of it at some point might be a possibility. I mean, uh, realistically, I, I've been speaking with Universal Music, and, and I've said this in some of the press I've been doing lately, because they own the EMI catalog. We're looking to re-release or at least make available, specifically digitally, the Slick Toxic records. They haven't even been made, uh, 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 you know, available for whatever it's been now, 30 years. So there's a lot of people clamoring for it and asking for it. But this is something that I, I've been, you know, doing and sort of uh, since, like Slick Toxic, honestly, was a long, long time ago. Yeah, and, 30 years. Doing the Nasty was what, 92? Yeah, 92. So <laughs> It's my history. I'm proud of my history, but history is what it is. Like, so. Um, Let me ask you this just real yeah. quick here, not to interrupt, but if I'm a, a 80s, 90s fan and I love Slick Toxic and I bought Doing the Nasty and I, and I don't know Famous Underground, in terms yeah. of musical style, am I going to like it? Am I going to be surprised? Am I going to go, oh my God, what's he doing now? Or is he going, oh man, the man, dude's still got it. Like, how, how do the two bands compare musically? Well, I, I would say that, honestly, if if you were a follower of the Slick Toxic catalog, Famous Underground is an extension of probably our second or our third release, really, but uh, Irrelevant, which was our second record, which came out sort of mid-90s when music had swung, the pendulum had swung, all of us sort of quote unquote hair metal guys or street metal guys or sleaze metal guys or whatever you want to call us, you know, we were sort of forced to sort of adapt to what the hell was going on around us or it was kind of a sink or swim sort of thing, right? 
And you notice some of the bands changed their images. You know, they went from wearing the, the you know, uh, bangles and hairspray to Doc Martin's shorts and, and flannel shirts. I mean, that was just sort of, I guess, a natural progression of our environments. And musically, we were a little bit more angry, slick toxic at that time. And the reason for that was because, you know, we went from being record label darlings to sort of like last week's news. And when you're uh, an artist and you're writing the music and, and you write what you know, if you're going to be real, you write what you know. And what we knew at that point was we were angry. We were feeling like the dog that was kicked to the curb. Yeah. And we're like, we just went gold and we got a Juno and we've toured all over North America and you've invested all this money as a major label in us. And that's all we are to you, you know, when the label's trying to make us sound like Blind Melon, when we were more equated to a GNR or Skid Row or something like that, you're not going to get Blind Melon out of Let me ask you this real quick. In terms of business lessons, because you win the Juno, and we've repeated it four four times now, best rock album of the year, and then your yesterday's news. Does that sort of wake you up and you go, oh, I heard about music business. I didn't realize this. Or were you like, well, that's like how much of a learning curve or a learning lesson was that where you're today's hero and yesterday's trash? Well, to be honest with you, in all our eyes, we, it, it, without being negative about that aspect of it, it was kind of more like, damn, if I was only born a few years earlier, you know what I mean? Sort of like, uh, because it was, it was like 87, like when I heard Guns N' Roses, that changed my outlook on music again. I mean, I grew up like you, a Kiss Kid, Alice Cooper, you know, Aerosmith, Queen, Queen and then in the 80s, when I got to like junior high and high school, I found sort of more my own music again. It was like the Iron Maidens, the Dio's, the Priests, all that stuff. And then, you know, as time progressed and I finally got my opportunity, you know, the pendulum swung very quickly. Uh, so, you know, if we had come out, we came out in 91, uh, fall of 91. Our record was actually finished for a full year before they put anything out. So it would have preceded certain records that were in the genre, like the Use Your Illusions records or Slave to the Grind, or, you know, it would have been out and possibly filled a void for the genre. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, oh, while we're waiting for these records, because remember what it was like back then. I mean, I do. It was magazines that told us when our favorite new bands were going to be putting out a record and tour. Gary Miller at Metal Edge. Metal Edge. God rest her soul, by the way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah posted about that when it happened but yeah it's like those those magazines sort of were the thing for everybody to get their information and then and then we would line up at you know what whatever uh record store was your favorite i don't know what you had in montreal but a and a or or uh, discus a and a and sam the record man Sam the record man there you go so we'd line up to get the new docking record or the new queen's right record or whatever and uh you know quickly it changed so to get back to your point yeah i i didn't we didn't feel like oh no we're you know this is the the dog eat dog world of the music industry because you know the music industry can can feed the public what they want as a trend or whatever but it's really the fans that dictate what they want and at that time i guess that's what they wanted they wanted some sort of change 
let's be honest that the sort of hard rock hair metal world was getting a little bit watered down it was completely uh, stale and it had nothing to do with nirvana it had to do with those fucking power ballads it was motley Crue power ballad def Leppard power ballad and you're like hey you're rock bands How, tr try rocking <laughs> please oh, you're right you're right and if crying you... amazing it's like oh my god stop <laughs> well if yeah and if you watched all the videos that were going on at the oh, time it was all that there's the power about it and it's like the slow motion oh, oh this is just so hard you know give me a break. yeah i mean the first single was a power ballad the second single was a power ballad the third single was a power ballad and every and it was just like oh for christ's sakes there's i'm watching the power hour and it's an hour of ba power ballads it's like stop the power ballad hour right? the power ballad hour yeah and then people go well nirvana killed it it's like no <laughs> rock fans wanted to rock and they were getting don't go away mad yeah that's true that's <laughs> true but you you gotta admit like uh for example for us anyway in toronto we had a pretty decent scene going on here yeah. uh we had some unsigned acts that were doing well slash puppet and and uh, oh, i jack, remember them jack damage and a few other local acts that didn't quite they were on the fringe of getting that deal but again by the time it happened it was like on to i mother earth and our lady peace and you know the alternative world whatever that means you know the word alternative was a genre that doesn't make sense but anyway it's the alternative to what right yeah no it's it, it's uh oh, those days but you know what uh, looking back on some of those 90 releases now when you look back for me on euphoria or or uh pure instinct from the score they they didn't register then, but now they're like, hey, you know what? There was some pretty good stuff going on here. Slang was was pretty decent. Um, since we're talking about the uh, Canadian scene, you were talking about the Toronto scene. Let's get over to Moxie. Moxie is a famous Canadian band. Yes. Long long history. Yep. Uh, Rust War for the Killer Dwarf sang for them for a while, and I I don't know if you came in right after him or yes after I did. yes I did. Um, talk to me about that because you know you're you're known for that '80s '90s kind of style and '80s '90s kind of vocal, and now you're going back and doing these sort of '70s things. Is that a challenge for you? Is it easy? Is it just cool? Talk to me about doing the Moxie thing. Well, the Moxie thing is a is a bit of a funny story because I have two brothers that are nine and ten years older than me, and I remember always you know when they weren't home, I would pull out their records and play their records and stuff without them you know hopefully not catching me but uh and i remember seeing moxie's first record it's the black cover and i remember seeing that and i never pulled it out i never knew what they sounded like or anything and then it just so happened that russ was getting the dwarves back together with daryl and that and uh moxie had an opportunity to do a show and i originally it was supposed to be one show down at the docks in toronto and i was like well why don't you send me some of the music over let me check it out and my wife and I were in my backyard hanging out, you know, just having a cocktail on a Saturday afternoon. When I got the music, I put it on and I was just dumbfounded as to how I could have missed this throughout my musical, uh, my broad musical history of a, of a fan and a listener and, and all that. Because it had elements of Led Zeppelin, it had elements of Aerosmith, had elements of ACDC. And these are all things that like are in my blood. So I don't know how I missed it. I was immediately, I got back on the phone and said, yeah, I can do this. So I, I learned the stuff about two weeks later. I think it was only a, a week of rehearsal and, and we were 
at the show a week later. And uh, after that, we had an opportunity to re record a record. And I, as I said, Russ was unavailable. And uh, Earl Johnson, who is Moxie, the lone standing member of Moxie, uh, original member of Moxie, was chomping at the bit. So, you know, we took the opportunity to do a re-record of the sort of classics off their first three records, the ones that were huge in Texas. Remember the old, you know, all these Canadian bands were huge in Texas. Well, it's yeah, true. It's true. It's, For some reason, Helix's number one market is Texas. Go figure. It's crazy. I went down there with Moxie the first first time I went down there right. with Moxie, and it was like. Why'd you even bring me? The audience is just singing all the songs anyway, word for word. <laughs> yeah. Like, this is insane. Then we do a meet and greet after, and Earl Johnson's being hailed in San Antonio as though he's Jimmy Page. It was yeah, for, yeah, for some reason, San Antonio loves Canadian rock. I, don't ask me why. Yeah, yeah. But it, a good rock in town, and, and yeah, it was great. And, and I've also been singing with a com company out of Toronto here called Classic Albums Live for about the last five, six years, which has helped keep me... Uh, uh, out in, in the public eye, playing big shows around North America, keeping the vocal chops up. But I get the opportunity to sing some of my, you know, childhood uh, uh, sort of soundtrack songs. Like I, I got to do A Night at the Opera by Queen. I toured that for a year. I, I, I do the Zeppelin stuff, which honestly, in high school, I was the guy picking on my friends who liked Zeppelin saying, that's your dad's music. You know what I mean? And now here I am, you know, Zeppelin's probably one of my favorite bands. In fact, because I grew up a Kiss kid, and now I know all the Zeppelin stuff. It's like Paul Stanley totally idolized Robert Plant's vocals, like totally idolized it. All the, oh, 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 all that stuff. That's Robert Plant right there, you know? So it's cool. I get to delve back into the history of the stuff that I liked and what made them who they were, you know? So it's cool. Since, since you're a, a Kiss kid and I'm a, a Kiss kid as well, um, do you have a, a favorite moment or a fa what was your first show? I mean, I saw them in August of 79 for uh, the Dynasty, Dynasty Tour. Tour. Yeah, I saw that. That was my first time. Wow. Maple in Blue Toronto? Garden. Yeah, Maple Leaf Gardens. I think it was like August the 18th or 3rd. I don't remember the date, but it was August of 79. I was eight. Uh, I'm born in 1970 and I'm a November baby. So I was eight years old. I remember sitting in Maple Leaf Gardens, like my shirt off, swinging it around, just going nuts, singing every word. And my elder brothers and their girlfriends took me to this thing and they were just laughing at their little brother going nuts, right? And the band great. that opened was New England. Do you remember I, that? I remember New England, yeah, Hirsch Gardner. Yeah, produced by what? Uh, Paul Stanley. Paul produced that record. And uh, I mean, that's a good opportunity for a band, right? And then I never yeah. heard of them again, but yeah. But, so but you know what? They're still touring. Keep asking me more Kiss uh, childhood questions. Yeah, uh, here we go. Uh, well, obviously the Paul Lynn special was a big deal. Yeah. Because, because I actually watched uh, HR Puffin stuff as a kid. And the fact that Witchy Poo got to introduce them and all that, and Paul at Paul Lynn's thing, which I also watched Bewitched and he was Uncle Arthur and all that stuff. So it was all, it all tied into like, my my childhood like really big my brother's waking me up on uh to watch don kirchner's rock concert or midnight special hey kiss is gonna be on you That's know right. the, it was it wasn't it was great and, and of Magic. course when the uh, reunion tour swung by toronto in 96 you must have gone absolutely i was there you know now i see you're drinking out of a, a blue jays cup uh, as a montrealer how exciting was it to watch the habs in the playoffs this season well, I got to be honest with you. Uh, when they Sorry. were playing, no, 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 really. 
I, I'm just a fan of good sports. Okay. I'm with you. Obviously, I'm a supporter. I'm a big baseball fan. Although I'm Canadian, I'm a, I'm a bigger baseball fan than I am a hockey fan, but I do watch hockey and you know, I, I'll probably get kicked in when, when I leave my house, somebody will probably kick the crap out of me when I get around the corner, but the way the Leafs were playing against Montreal, I, they didn't deserve to win because Montreal had such a, a verve and uh, a passion and hunger to win the games. And, and, and it seemed as though that the Leafs were kind of uh, uh, passive and possibly even, oh no, I'm going to get in trouble, self-entitled a bit. They, they were a little bit arrogant. They got to 3-1 and they went, Pfft. That's what I'm saying. And... Okay. But then, honestly, when your team got into the uh, the final, there there was really no match. There was no match, and they they also had nothing left in the tank. They were no. just completely. I mean, they they left it on the ground in Vegas, you know. Yeah, yeah. Totally and, but but the Leafs, by the way, when you got to Game Seven, I have never seen a worse Game Seven performance by any team. They 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 just didn't show up. They were just like, fuck it, let Montreal win. Yeah, <laughs> but we were going for Montreal. Don't don't uh, kid yourself. Although I'm a Toronto guy and I live in Toronto and everything, I mean, it, it's like the Blue Jays. Excuse me. There's no Montreal Expos in baseball anymore. There's no other Canadian team in the Major League of Baseball. So this is this is Canada's national team, right? So that's exactly how it was when Montreal went to the Stanley Cup. I mean, yeah. that was Canada's national. Bring the cup home, yeah. you know. So. We got one game. <laughs> we got 25% of the way there. Anyway, uh, in my uh, reflection, the new EP from uh, Famous Underground, check it out. It's available everywhere. And on that, uh, Nick, uh, merci. Hey, no problem. Thanks for having me, Mitch. I hope to be on again. Absolutely. Thank you, sir.